we just poured our next brew. <laughs> so I, I wish I could drink with you there. I wish, I wish so. Maybe so we, if we can get you to Ohio somehow, right? Ohio? Yeah, we're in, we're in Ohio. Okay, so. well, maybe uh, my sister-in-law is moving to Ohio. So oh. maybe uh, if we ever come visit there, I'll, I'll stop in, stop by the studio. That'll be awesome. Your studio. That, then you can, you, <laughs> can visit, you can visit the man cave. Yeah, the man cave. <laughs> yeah, it's nice. we got surround sound and flat screens, and it's nice. It looks comfy. That'd be really cool. It is. This is uh this one is me Fat Heads Holly Jolly. Mike, take it over. Oh man, I can't see that far from over here. <laughs> Don't be sub in. Alright, it says Once upon a frozen evening, way up north, a sweet local honey named Holly inspired our jolly fat man, as only Holly can do, to create this festive spiced holiday ale. We think you will enjoy this holiday creation with its aromas and flavors of Christmas Day. Sweet malt, ginger honey, and cinnamon spice. Sip this by the fire with your significant other. Who knows? Maybe it'll lead to a little inspiration of your own. From <laughs> our jolly fat man to yours. So this one is a uh, alcohol content of 7.5 with an IBU of two, uh, 28. 28. All right. Have a sip. So, Brian, our MO is we only do local breweries around here. Gotcha. That's actually This is a big one around here. Oh, this one's a huge one. Yeah. Fedheads is really so big popular. in Ohio. It's very, very cool. big in Ohio. Yeah, they're building a big, huge facility, brand oh, new. Man. So it's. Oh, man. This has a beautiful, like, amber, auburn color. Uh, not too much head, but it definitely has the nutmeg type flavor. Oh, a little ginger, That's cinnamon. Really That's really good. That's very well balanced. How was your bourbon? Very good. I'm <laughs> enjoying it. Well, we did have two questions come in for you. Oh, nice. Um, hey, wait, before you ask one of those, oh, yes, I, yes, I go got ahead. one from something Brian no, said no, earlier. No, no, please, please, go ahead. Brian, you touched on uh, Jesus being the fulfillment of, you, you know, the New Testament being the fulfillment of Christ's work earlier, and uh, uh, you, you didn't say necessarily that it nullifies the Old Testament, but... It, we kind of do away with the Old Testament. We have the new. We're in the New Testament now, correct? Yeah. yeah. So I guess my question is from organized uh, Judaism. You know, how, how do they? How are they supposed Ooh, to look at it? You're touching on one of mine. Go ahead. <laughs> uh, you know, I know there are a lot of people who are uh, rabbis who are offended by just the word Old Testament. Yeah. You know and. <laughs> You know, it's funny. I, um, I, I, I'm most recently actually doing a lot more studying on this because I find it a fascinating topic that I had not explored before until I uh, interacted online with uh, this a person from the Hebrew Roots Movement. Mm. I don't know if you're familiar with oh, that, yeah. but it's yeah. Yeah, it's basically it's basically Christians who are arguing that we should keep Torah. Yeah, uh, and they 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 argue. Oh, it's it's not our it's not our salvation, but we should keep the kosher. We should <laughs> you know uh, keep the laws of separation or whatever, uh, or at least the dietary codes and the, the Sabbath laws. And, and do the yeah. festivals and all that stuff. And you know, in, in and of itself, I don't have any problem with like celebrating festivals as you know the, the festivals of Israel as a memory of God. It's a it's a it can be a beautiful uh, tradition, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, but. 
but it, it really helped me to see this. And I think that they're very connected to the Jewish aspect and trying to impose the Jewishness. And um, even to the point where I said, you know, so are you saying we, have, we should get circumcised? You know, and they said, well, yeah, it doesn't save you. It doesn't save you. They keep saying that. But <laughs> it's law, the law of God says it. The law of God says it. And, you know, so I would go through passages like Galatians, you know, where it's, oh, my gosh, and Romans. There's just so many passages that really talk about how, you know, it's like, you know, circumcision is nothing and uncircumcision is nothing. Yeah, and, yeah. you know, being a true Jew is one who has faith. And so your faith actually makes you the Jew and and we are dead to the law. We die to the law yeah, in yeah. Romans, you know, it talks about that. And Oh, they've got a way and, to, uh, to to distort that. They've got they've got a huge way to distort that. Absolutely. Um, I know. And I, have, I was interacting <laughs> with them. That's why I realized, wow, this really is important. And, yeah. and I want to explore this a little bit more further because I think that it also connects with a lot of other elements of the storyline of uh, Israel and all that. But um, this is where I think uh, my preterism, which is, you know, in, in the novels of Chronicles of the Apocalypse, you know, I'm making the argument that the book of Revelation is not in the, in the distant future. It's actually in the near future in the first century, because what they were predicting was the destruction of the temple mm-hmm. in 87. John, the apostle, was writing about that. And he was really just expanding on what Jesus said in Matthew 24. Yeah. The temple's going to be destroyed. Not one stone will be left upon another. And here's, you know, here's again, all that language that we interpret mo- through modern eyes and we misinterpret it completely. Yeah. And, um, but why that was so important is, is twofold reason, and the book of Hebrews is what really brings this out really, really strongly. But uh, the idea is that, again, Christ completely, you know, Christ, Jesus, the Messiah is the ultimate fulfillment of, of everything. He is the true Israelite, yeah. as N.T. Wright says. He mm. is Israel. He is the land. Jesus is the land. Jesus is the sacrifice. Jesus is the high priest. Jesus is the temple. And yeah. this is what the New Testament says over and over again. And and this the obsession with the earthly Judaism is to me just a reflection of of what of how the Jews first missed Messiah because they expected an earthly Messiah. And they yeah. they were expecting, they were interpreting the Old Testament through this hyperliteralism. Even they were, even they were victims of hyperliteralism, right? And mm-hmm. um, they didn't understand that the spiritual transformation of what the the apostles and what Jesus said occurred was they didn't accept that they didn't they wanted this earthly deliverer, and um, consequently you've got all these passages that just talk about we are the temple of God, you know, being built up like stones into a into a dwelling place of God, and there's all this fulfillment language in the New Testament that that um, many modern Christians don't they miss and they don't realize that that means that there is a transformation in the new covenant is a transformation of the old covenant terms and concepts. It's no longer um, the inheritance that we talked about earlier. The inheritance is now in the New Testament is spoken of as the kingdom of God, which is it's not here or there. It is among, <laughs> it is in your midst. It mm, is spiritual yeah. kingdom. Jesus is a Messiah that came with the spiritual kingdom, not the physical kingdom. And and the land is now the body of Christ. And uh, the temple is now the body of Christ because we are the, we are the physical humans on earth who have God's spirit in us. We are Christ's body. We are that temple. We're the bricks and, and the wall. And, and they don't accept that. It's like, <laughs> yeah, no, no, there's still yeah, going to yeah. be a physical temple. There's all this kind of stuff. But the problem is, is that the New Testament very clearly says that all these things are, are done away with. Um, and, 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 and the historical validation of that belief 
is in the destruction of the temple. God himself yeah, comes, exactly. uses yeah. the Roman armies to destroy, as Jesus said they would, in Matthew 24 and Luke 21, that that God destroyed the temple and the holy city of Jerusalem. Why? Because he was he was getting rid of the old covenant system. And secondly, because he was judging forever, he was destroying the nation of Israel for rejecting Messiah. Now, okay. the truth is, is that there was a remnant who did believe in Messiah. Mm-hmm. And if you follow remnant theology through the, Old, through the Old Testament, you see it's the same in the New Testament. Paul says in Romans 9, there, even as there was a remnant that were saved back then, even though the whole nation was judged, but the God always kept his promises to the remnant, the remnant of what? The true believers. So there is a remnant now, and that remnant are the Jewish Christian believers, right? Mm-hmm. And then they would be united with Gentile believers. And so this, the, the whole point is that the new covenant is this beautiful fulfillment of all the all these prophecies of the old covenant, of the Old Testament that was saying, you know, Messiah would come and change the world. And the problem is the Christians are still seeing that as a literal thing. Yeah. You know, when it says Messiah will build the temple, it says Messiah will build the temple in Zechariah. Well, yeah, and the New Testament says Messiah built the temple. It's a spiritual temple. Yeah. Well, you're spiritualizing yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> if God spiritualizes, then we should spiritualize, you know? And so that the, my point is, is that the New Covenant is the spiritual transformation of the old covenant promises to Israel and and you know the church is Israel is the Israel of God but it's, and it's 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 not a replacement it's just simply God transformed he resurrected literally yeah. you know the Ezekiel 37 he said I will yeah. I will you're you're dead but I'm going to resurrect you what what does that mean I'm going to bring you back in well when mm-hmm. did he bring Israel back in Pentecost yes the gospel mm-hmm. Yeah. The gospel brings Jews back to Messiah and connects them with Gentiles as well. From every That's nation. the other little thing, right? From every so all nation. all this stuff yeah. is, is the fulfillment, is the spiritual fulfillment. And so when he destroys the temple... Um, that's the destruction of everything, the priesthood, the sacrifices, everything. Yeah. yeah. And I find it very fascinating that God did not allow that temple to ever be rebuilt. Isn't right. that interesting? Yeah. Right. Yeah. Why yeah. would he do that? Right. He made sure that the lineage was gone and the records yeah. that proved it. Yeah, yeah. It's funny you say that you you bring up the um, the remnant theology because the remnant theology is exactly what Hebrew roots is is using now. And oh, really? uh, oh yeah, not not to bring up names, but one of the very prevalent and Gumby knows who I'm talking about. <laughs> one of the very prevalent Hebrew roots people. We'll talk off camera about this. Um, one of the very prevalent people in the Hebrew roots movement who's really pushing it forward right now. Um, that's one of the aspects that he pushes is that it's the remnant theology. Huh? Interesting. So. Because if you read Romans nine remnant is basically believers in Messiah. <laughs> yeah. And by the way, he goes on to say in that same chapter and Gentiles who believe are grafted onto that same branch. So they're part of the remnant. Yeah. And so in a very real sense, yeah. So, so in a very real sense, preterism is the thing that demolishes this, this Hebrew roots movement um, because it really points out the fact that, that um, God is the one who destroyed that temple in AD 70. Yeah. Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Uh, and, and this, this has multiple presence. I mean, you know, you've got, uh, oh my gosh, I mean, just, there's there's all kinds of examples. You know, remember the parable, I think it's Matthew 22, uh, Matthew 21, Matthew 22, the the um, parable of the tenants and the, and the wedding feast. Mm-hmm. 
you know, these many Christians read these things and they think, you know, oh, the parable of the tenants, right? This is the one where it goes, oh, uh, the tenants, uh, the landlord keeps sending them messengers and they kill the tenants and destroy them. And then the, finally he sends his son. And then it says in Matthew 21, 38, but when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and have his inheritance. That's the first century Jews killing Jesus, the Messiah. Right. And they took him and threw him out of camp. Yeah. Right. And then it says, when therefore the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to them? And they said, Destroy. he will put those wretches to a miserable death and let out the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the fruits in their season. And Jesus says, therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people producing its fruits. So he's literally, he's saying, you have not, you know, you have rejected God over and over and over again in the Old Testament. Finally, God is going to divorce you, to divorce Israel for rejecting him, and he's going to marry a new bride, the bride of Christ, which is both Jew and, and Gentile believers in Jesus. And then the parable that he gives right after that is the parable of the wedding feast. And everyone assumes, oh, yeah, that's the second coming. That's the second coming. It's like, no, it's not. Jesus is talking <laughs> to those Jews of that time period. They are rejecting Messiah. And he talks about the kingdom of heaven. Uh, a, you know, a king you know, invites to a wedding feast. Who are those he invites to the wedding feast? It's the Jews, because that's what, who the promises were, right? Mm -hmm. But they were the ones who said, oh, no, no. Uh, he says, uh, I prefer, prepared a f oxen and calves, come to the wedding feast. And they paid no attention, went off, one to his farm, another to his business. I'm too busy. And then while the rest of those Jews seized his servants, treated them shamefully and killed them, that's always the Jews are always the ones who kill the prophets in the Old and New Testament. That's true. The, true. the king was angry. He sent his troops and destroyed those murderers and burned their city. So it <laughs> says here that God's the one who burned Jerusalem for mm -hmm. them rejecting Messiah. And then he says, go, you know, go and invite everyone in, in you know, everyone you can, you know, and that's, of course, the uh, the point that you know Jews have rejected him so now like Paul said in Acts I'm now going to go to the Gentiles because you you prove yourselves unworthy so this whole notion is um, is finalized in Revelation where apostate Israel that rejects Jesus are is called the harlot or yeah. Babylon mm. and he he divorces he divorces Israel because she's become a harlot and then he has then he commits capital punishment. He destroys her and destroys the city, destroys the old covenant, right? And he has two witnesses because you can't you can't kill execute someone without two witnesses, That's right? True. So That's two true. witnesses of chapter eleven, Roman. And then he marries a new bride, the bride of Christ, and that's the new covenant. That's the whole point. And so in the book of Hebrews, this is the thing that the Hebrew roots movement they try desperately, and this is where I, you know, I, I haven't studied them or anything. I just had interaction with this guy. So he made the best arguments. He was a, he was good at trying to throw out his verses. But it's just, it's absurd because it's very clear in, in, in Hebrews 8. It says, you know, if the first covenant had been faultless, there would have been no need for a second. Behold, I will establish a new covenant, says Jeremiah. And they try to say, well, the word covenant isn't in there. But the word covenant is in there. It, it's a covenant. And they try to say that the, it's the priesthood that's gone away with. No, it's the whole covenant. Because down in the bottom, he says, uh, Hebrews 8, 13. In speaking of a new covenant, he makes the first one obsolete. Yep. And what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. What does that mean? Well, what that means is the temple hadn't been destroyed yet. They're right. in the transition period. Hebrews is writing, and he's warning them, the temple's going to be destroyed, you guys. 
And it's already obsolete, but it's becoming obsolete and it's ready to vanish away. What? Because when it's destroyed, that's when it'll be totally vanished away. And he clarifies this a few verses later in chapter 9, verse 26. He says, Christ appeared once for all at the end of the ages. Jesus already appeared at the end of the ages to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So that was the end of the old covenant age. So he's offered once to bear the sins of many. Chapter 9, verse 8, just a few verses later from this, he says, The Holy Spirit indicates the way into the holy places, the way into the heavenly holy places, not the earthly, the context says that, is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which Mm. is symbolic for the present age. So if you read that passage in context, he's he's clearly saying, as long as the first holy, the earthly holy place is still standing, the, the new covenant isn't fully consummated. And, the, and, and he says very clearly here that the old, the earthly holy place is symbolic for the present age. So when the temple is destroyed, when the holy place is destroyed on earth, that is the final destruction of that symbol of the old covenant age that verifies that it's all gone and done away with. Yep. And I know these guys don't like that because they want to, you know, I don't know, maybe they want to even rebuild the <laughs> temple. I don't know, but. Do they're they? trying. They're oh, really yeah. trying. They're really, they really trying. To. They're trying hard. <laughs> There's a whole it's temple absurd. institute. Yeah. yeah. So, so okay. So on that line, one of my questions, actually, it's kind of funny. You brought up last time about uh, a bastardized version of Judaism, the Talmudic Jews, Judaism. Yeah. So what are your feelings on that, about how they're trying now, to recreate it? Yeah. So uh, I'm basically... Because of the destruction of the temple in A.D. 70, um, over a million Jews were slaughtered and hundreds of thousands, 150,000, I think, went into slavery. So it was almost wiped out. The surviving Jews, including, I can't remember, I can't remember the guy's name. There was a famous rabbi who, who um, went to, excuse me, went to Vespasian and basically, you know, blessed him and said that, you know, oh, you are, you know, you are prophesied by God, you know, and just like Josephus did. And, um, and so he let him go to Jamnia, where he was allowed to start a, a school of, of uh, rabbis. And that's the school that's, that created rabbinic Judaism. Yes. Uh, and why? Because they said, well, we don't have a temple anymore, so how can we perform our religion, right? We can't. So, so that's, so they created a whole system to account for the lack of the temple. And the temple was the heart and soul of the Mosaic covenant. Right. So if you're not engaging in sacrifices in the temple, you're not obeying God. Well, they had to create a system that would justify and say, oh no, no, we're still obeying God. Right. But the fact is, is they're not. And so that's why you get, that's why modern day Judaism is not even biblical Judaism. Yeah, they go to the Bible, but they really study more the rabbinic, you know, passages than they do the Bible themselves. The Mishnah. And yeah, yeah. Mishnah and and Talmud and all that stuff. They go to Talmud school and stuff. Right. But, um, so, uh, so, but what's interesting is that destruction of that temple was also the thing that, that kicked Christians out on their butts. And, and from that point on, Christianity spread around the world like wildfire. Why? Because they were still in, enmeshed with, with the Jews because the temple was still around. It was still a messy transition period. Mm. Yeah, Christ came and he sacrificed, and we don't need the sacrifice anymore, but but we're still Jews and we still got the temple, and you know, there was still confusion going on. And even some of the apostles 
I think, you know, they, 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 you know, like the apostle Paul did some, some vows and stuff and they went to the temple and stuff. I think he was doing that just as a means to reach fellow Jews by being a Jew for Jews. Right. Right. Um, what makes sense. But, Is, isn't that what he said? Didn't he say I was a Jew to the Jew and I was a Gentile to the Gentiles. Right. Yeah, exactly. So, so he did that, but that's because the temple was still standing. But as soon as it was destroyed, that was the final ending. And then that's what kicked the Christians out. And that's what made it explode around the world. Interesting how uh, it made Ju- Judaism turn into something totally non-biblical and made Christianity explode. So that's why this event is so powerful spiritually in my mind, mm-hmm. this destruction of the temple in AD 70. It's so powerful because it's a spiritual uh, and historical uh, center point of history. And it also embodies this destruction of the symbolic old age with the coming of the new age. And don't forget the old covenant, all uh, the, the mosaic, the Torah, the prophets, what did they prophesy? They, they, they believed that there were two ages, the present age and the age to come. Right. And so the whole point of the new Testament is they're saying, you know, we're at the end of the ages, like in this chapter, it says right here, you know, uh, in, in, in Hebrews, it says Christ came at the consummation of the ages. What the heck does that mean? Other than, the end, the consummation of the old covenant age. Right. Why? Because when Messiah comes, the messianic age is here. And this is this whole thing that, you know, the, the, the new Testament is saying, that's right. And everything that the prophets prophesied has come true in Messiah. It's a, it, the problem is it's a spiritual kingdom, not an earthly one. That's why they miss all the meaning of it well, on it, every level. It's funny you say that too, because Inside of uh, a lot of books and even in some translations to say the end of the world, but it doesn't say the end of the world. The, the, the Greek word is aeons. It's ages, right? So, yes, you know, there's, um, if yeah. I can, uh, I don't have it. I'm going to have to open it here. There's a great, um, there, oh, there it is. So there's this great notion, end of the age. All right. The last days and the end of the age. I can't tell you how many times in the Bible, it's so loud and clear that you have to twist scriptures in order to, to conclude that the last days are the last days of the earth, of the world. The end of the age <laughs> is the end of time. Because again, in their time period, that's not how they understood it. Yeah. Hebrews 1.1, he says, God spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many ways. In these last days, he has spoken to us in his son. So they said the last days were in the first century, not in the future, right? Hebrews 9.26, I mentioned this earlier, it says, But now once, at the consummation of the ages, Christ has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So the sacrifice of Christ occurred at what? The consummation, consummation of the ages. What is that? Well, it has to be the consummation of the Mosaic age, the old covenant age, because Messiah would do that. That's what Messiah would do, right? Then it says in 1 Corinthians 10, 11, these things happened as an example. The Old Testament things happened to them as an example. They were written for our instruction upon whom the end of the ages have come. It, and there's more and more about this. So to me, it's so clear that the end of the ages, the last days are the last days of the Old Covenant, and they were in the first century. And so many Christians just try to they try to spin these to make them, oh, no, no, that's not what it means. It means something else, and we're in the last days now. You know, it's like, or the last days started then, but now they're going on for 2,000 years. That's ridiculous. Well, it's funny you point this out, because if you go over to um, to Acts 2, 
I mean, it's Peter that quotes uh, Joel when he says, in the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit. And then he's quoting Jude, indicating that in Acts 2, you're already seeing the beginning of the last days. Yes. Now, this is a very classic thing where he says... Um, they're drunk, you know. They're uh, they're not drunk on wine, as you suppose. They're 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 filled with the spirit. He says, but this is what was uttered through the prophet Joel, and these Christians who don't. And he says, in the last days, God will pour out my spirit on all flesh. They don't want that to mean what it says. Right. So they say, this is like that was which was uttered. They literally <laughs> add to the word of God so that so that they can say, well, that Joel pro- prophecy isn't really the fulfillment because then it talks about. Signs and the wonders in, in the heavens above, and blood, fire, vapor, and so, smoke. Sun shall be turned to darkness, the moon to blood, before the day of the Lord comes. And, and they're like, well, that can't have happened then. They impose their own theology rather than saying, well, maybe it's what it says. Uh, Peter is saying this, this filling of the Spirit is the fulfillment of the prophecy that said, I will pour out my Spirit in the last days. Right, know? right. So it's the last days of the old covenant. And that is a profound and beautiful thing to me because it just shows this consummation of the ages. It shows us that the old covenant, new covenant thing is a lot more bigger issue to God than just yes. this like, you know, sort of the, the other thing that the uh, uh, the Hebrew roots guy, one of, one of the guys that I was talking with, what he says is, he says, well, I, I don't think it's a new, I don't think it's a new covenant as if it replaces the other one, but it's a renewed covenant. Right. <laughs> so like, so, okay. So, and these guys are hyper literalists too. So I'm like, so you who says you got to take the Bible literally now you're, you're denying the literal words that says new covenant because the <laughs> word is new, not renew. Right. It's new. Even in Greek. And so yeah, <laughs> these things are so powerful to me yeah, that, yeah. uh, that I had to write novels about it. Right. <laughs> well, it's important too. Great novels too. It's a, you know, the preterist view, if I may, is, oh, a, is a lot less violent. Thank you. Because this end of times view or apocalyptic view, whatever we want to call it, I, I like to call it dispensationalist view. Even like with Trump just uh, declaring Jerusalem as, you know, the capital of Israel. That's a fulfillment of prophecy. Right. There are, <laughs> there are millions of evangelicals waiting for the return of Christ. Yeah. breaks my heart. And yeah. it, it's a very serious issue because yeah. with bad theology yeah. follows bad morals. Yeah. 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 And and so what they do is they justify, look, I'm, you know, I, and I write this in my book. I wrote a book called Israel and Bible Prophecy, and I address this dispensational notion that, uh, that the, the modern day nation state of Israel is biblical Israel. Like, no, it's not. It's literally not. And, and, um, and I show how the Church of Jesus Christ fulfills all the promises to Abraham. Mm-hmm. And so you are not a child of Abraham if you're not a believer in the Church of Jesus Christ. Right. And um, so, uh, but but what what you were saying is something that happens a lot where um, this oh. So because they think that they're still uh, God's chosen people, the uh, Zionism, um, they they think then that you know they can do anything they want because that's God, God's given them the land. So, so in other words, they, they, uh, Israel can do no wrong. Right. Mm-hmm. And, and that of course justifies, um, immoral things that the state does do. Now I always say, I, yeah. 
I'm I am a supporter of Israel for political reasons for because it's a democracy and they're one of our allies and the only ally in the in a in a in a Middle East full of slavery and tyranny. So I want to support them and fight for them and and you know uh, I believe in them in that sense politically, but not theologically or, or religiously. So, um, but nevertheless. This this idea is you know and I keep I keep saying this too and I, I got this from Gary Demar to be honest but it's profound these dispensations these futurist people who talk about Bible prophecy Bible prophecy they believe as it says in Zechariah that two thirds of the Jews will be slaughtered in the land <laughs> and they're the ones who are saying let's support Israel and bring the Jews back to the land because Jesus is coming so they're they're telling Jews to go back to the land that they believe two thirds of them will be slaughtered. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right. So who's the anti-Semite? Exactly. You know I mean? like, exactly. That's almost anti-Semitic to me. Right. Right. You know, so it's like this is this is and so really the Jews who really question those evangelicals, they're smart to do so because they make that point. They go, well, wait a minute, they they're supporting us only because they think we're gonna be slaughtered before their Jesus returns, right? And uh, I think they're wise to be to, to right. really question them. Yeah. Yeah, good point. Good point. I, man, think about that. They were like, let's let's flip that around. Let's just say that. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. If two thirds of the Puerto Ricans return back to Puerto Rico, right? <laughs> they can't even do that now, <laughs> right. even if we wanted to. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's that's horrible. That's horrible. <laughs> all, all kinds of terrible ramifications of this Bible prophecy mm-hmm. that's going on t- these days, and you know, and sometimes I wish I was a scholar so I could like you know address it even even more but you know oh, i'm, I'm a, you know as it is i'm an artist i'm a fictional novelist and i try to embody it in my in my writing but i do think that there's a bigger problem bigger picture going on there. and that's one of the reasons why I'm, i wrote chronicles of the apocalypse because i feel like i want to i want to you know tell this story and show how i think the book of revelation and the last days and the end times how it's all fulfilled in the first century um and it's all about this beautiful you know, ending of the old covenant, destruction of the old covenant temple, and the rep- and, and and the coming of the new covenant in Christ, and how the body of Christ becomes God's God's resurrected Israel, basically, to to go to, to the rest of the earth and bring the kingdom to to everybody. To me, that's like glorious, rather than, you know, who's the antichrist and and what's all the evil? Oh, here's all the evil, and this is the mark of the beast. There, there, these Christians are obsessed with with studying evil. And rather yeah. than studying Christ, you know, yeah, and uh, I, it just it's it, I think it I think it has some bad bad ramifications. <laughs> yeah, indeed. Before I get too far away, I've got two questions. Let's see. One comes from Ben Bastings. He said he has a question about the breathing into the beasts of Daniel and Revelation. So. He, th- he wants to know what you believe is the the impetus behind the discussion of what that means, the breathing of the life into the beasts of Daniel Revelation. Yeah, breathing of life into the beast. Um, that is, does he, does he give the passage? I'm trying to... He didn't give the passage. Okay, so Revelation 13, 11. Um, I think that's what he's talking about. Then I saw a beast rising out of the earth that had two horns like a lamb and spoke like a dragon. Uh, authority of the first beast in his presence. The inhabitants of the earth, of the land, worshipped the beast whose mortal wound was healed. And that doesn't come up till, till a little bit later. Oh, verse 3. 
I believe that the, there's two beasts in, in the Revelation. One is the beast from the sea, and the other is the beast of the land. And one of the problems is, is the word that in English says earth, but it's actually, it's a word that is better translated land. And the reason why I say that is when we say earth, we always think of the globe, right? The spirit, spherical globe, and that's not what they were thinking of. And I think that the context of earth in Revelation, I can prove it to you, is basically the land. And when the Jews said the word land, they always usually meant the land of Israel. So that while the first sea beast represents Rome in you know, Revelation 17, it's the Roman Empire with the seven heads and the seven kings, the Caesars and you know, all that kind of stuff, the, the, the la this land beast is it's connected to Rome in the spirit, in the spiritual you know, subservience realm. But I think it represents the, um, and I got this from Ken Gentry, by the way, I'm not, I'm not original here. Ken Gentry is a, a great scholar. And his, great scholar. His Revelation commentary is coming out this year. Or next year. Anyway, I think that that, that land beast represents the um, apostate Israel, Israel, basically, and and the ruling religious authorities. Um, and so when it when you read the word earth, you need to change that to word to the word land. This is why many Christians misinterpret Revelation as being the judgment on the earth. See, it says the earth. You know, uh, all the earth and its inhabitants. No, it's the land and its inhabitants. Verse two, twelve. It says. The earth, it makes the earth and its, and its inhabitants worship the first beast. It's the land and its inhabitants. And that phrase in Greek, inhabitants of the land, in the old Greek Old Testament was always used of Israel. Mm. So it's talking about the, the Israelites who submit to and follow the apostate leaders of apostate Israel. And what I mean by that is they, they were very pro-Roman. Right. Because they like, yeah. let's not call you know, let's obey them. Let's submit. They're letting us do what we need to do. And all these Jewish revolutionaries were rising up and saying, no, no, no God, but Lord, no God, but Yahweh. And then the leadership of Israel was trying to calm them down. And uh, because they were they supported Rome. And so there's this, you know, this 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 uh, incestuous relationship, so to speak, between Rome and, and the leadership of Israel. So I think that's what the land beast is. So, um, and then, it, you know, it talks about things like, you know, performing signs like fire come from heaven to earth in front of people and, um, it, it deceives them and such, you, you know, you got to go into a, a deep study on where these phrases come from, cause they're all connected to old Testament things. And I, I don't have the time to sit there and go through all the details now, but it says it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. So, um, it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast. So basically, I think, again, if you, you've got to approach Revelation as a symbolic book, in the very first verse of the book, it says, the angel signified these things to John. In Greek, the word means, means semiotics, which is symbols. Mm -hmm. So Revelation is predominantly a book of symbols, so you have to understand it that way. So I think basically what it's saying here Great is that, uh, and I don't know the full details of this, but it's not literal is my point, you guys. It's not like, oh, there's the well, visions and, you know, and, and, and it's like an android that comes alive or anything like that. It's nothing <laughs> like that. It's talking about like giving power to, yeah. giving life to, right? Yeah. Yeah. And it's allegorical. I actually, I actually think Ken Gentry makes a good argument that the image of the beast is the temple. Uh, and it's also the altar of the beast. 
And so he's, you know, in other words, the the corrupt apostate leadership, uh, high priesthood, is 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 keeping that alive. It's giving its breath to that 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 temple, which is actually dead in God's eyes. Right in God's eyes, the old covenant temple is dead. And so uh, it's just speaking of that, you know, in other words, no, it's not, I don't think it's literal. And so when we try to interpret these things literally, you're automatically sort of off track, you know what I mean? And so symbolically, you have to, you have to prove where you get your symbols from and, and, and that's fine. And, you know, five minute talk here isn't going to prove it to you, but, <laughs> but uh, Gentry does do a good job of that in his, in his revelation commentary. But the point here is, is that, um, all throughout Revelation, John is is saying that Israel has become like the beast, like a monster that God's going to judge. In Revelation 11, it literally comes out and says, you know, the, the you know the two witnesses, and it says, you know, their bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where our Lord was crucified. That's Jerusalem. So he's saying Jerusalem has become Sodom and Egypt. Now remember, what are, Egypt was the number one enemy of God. Sodom was the number one example of God's judgment throughout. Right? They always say, "Ah, remember Sodom, right?" And and so uh, and then later on in Revelation, he likens the great city to Babylon. So Jerusalem is Babylon. Jerusalem is Egypt. Jerusalem is Sodom. The point here is he's saying that which we, you know, the, the, the nation of Israel has turned from the, the people of God into God's enemies. And what were God's biggest enemies? Egypt, Babylon, and, and Sodom. And that's awesome. what Israel has become in God's eyes. Mm-hmm. And that's why he's going to judge them. And so in other words, all this imagery is, is sort of showing how Israel has become a beast or a monster before God. And so he's going to kill it. I couldn't agree more. And the second the second question I'll throw in there. This is going to be from Joe Chen. The other ones kind of mix in with the slides I already have. So I'm only going to bring up these two because these two are the ones that came off that were different than the other slides. Um, he said, I would like to know <laughs> what in preterism allows the rejection of a future fulfillment? So he's saying that's as opposed good, to. Yeah, that's a good question. The truth is, uh, there are many people who do acknowledge the preterist fulfillment of these things, and then they say, yet, nevertheless, there will be a double fulfillment of the same prophecies in the future. Hmm. Now, I acknowledge that there are people who believe that. I don't believe it's, I don't believe it's true, but it, 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 it's a legitimate you know, uh, position that many Christians take. Uh, and that's okay. Um, it doesn't bother me. Um, I'm, you know, but I, I don't believe that it actually works. Um, but the problem is, is that there are examples in the old Testament that people will point to like, um, that seem to have double fulfillment. And I'll, I'll admit this is an issue I haven't worked out fully yet. Uh, but, uh, when, you know, Isaiah seven, you know, where it talks about the virgin, the maiden will bear a child you know, and it, it, it seems to be he's talking about someone there, right there, you know, and there's a fulfillment in the present. Mm-hmm. And then, of course, we also claim that it's also fulfilled in Christ, right? And they say, well, so, so there's an example of two fulfillments of one prophecy, right? 
Well, there's a good argument that that isn't that prophecy isn't about someone right then and there, uh, and it always was about Messiah. Okay, I, you can make that argument, but I also recognize that there's a good argument that it does have double fulfillment. You know, um, so but I don't believe that double fulfillment continues to work because once the once the fulfillment of a how can I put it. Um, once the messianic fulfillment has occurred, then there's no more other fulfillments. Because otherwise, you would have to say, well, if you, you can if you can double fulfillment everything, then why wouldn't there be a, another Messiah born in Bethlehem again? <laughs> yeah, Jesus was born in Bethlehem, but then there's also going to be a Messiah born in Bethlehem in the future. And you say, oh no, no, that can't be. Well, why not? If you believe in double fulfillment. <laughs> oh, touche. <laughs> so that's that's what I say. And think about that. You know, uh, then Christ can. There could be another Messiah who dies for our sins again because he can fulfill, double fulfillment. And another well, what resurrection, would, What would too. make you yeah. say, well, no, that can't be? Here's what it is. Well, once they're fulfilled in Messiah, the ultimate— In other words, if you look at it typologically, like there are reflections and echoes that are ultimate in, 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 in what they call types. Types are images that reflect the ultimate fulfillment in the anti-type. Right. But once the anti-type arrives, then that's it. So when Messiah arrives, there's no more fulfillment beyond that. So, so for example, I would say, um, uh, if God is saying, if if what I'm saying is true that this is all about the 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 final destruction of the old ages and the old covenant, and the coming of the new covenant, how can you say that there's going to be another destruction of the old covenant? You know, and the new co- you see what I'm saying it's like yeah. The anti-type has already come, and the final destruction of Jerusalem represents the end of the old covenant, the end, the coming of the new covenant, and the glory of God's kingdom. How can you say that there's multiple fulfillments of that? There's another fulfillment in the future. That doesn't make sense to me. Yeah. Um, but I do acknowledge that you know there are some people who believe that, and my goal is just to say, well, okay, I just want to get you to at least see this, you know, this this uh, first century fulfillment, because that's the one that people are refusing to see. And once I get you there, you can go ahead and believe in double fulfillment. And then let's talk about that next. You know, right, that's kind of right. how I see it. <laughs> it, it. It's a good point. I mean, at, at what point do we, are, are we argue, arguing about a skipping record, right? So, yeah. <laughs> so. Yeah. Well, I, I haven't fully, I haven't fully f- worked out this, this notion that I will admit that there are some messianic prophecies that appear to be, a, you know, like I said, you know, Isaiah seven is the best example of that. But you know, it just appears to be that there's a local referent to the prophecy, and then the distant referent in Messiah. Sometimes it does look like that, but I haven't studied okay. enough to really address it fully. Okay. But all I do know is, yeah. But once Messiah comes, there's no more fulfillments. Sorry. <laughs> so I would say, once the new covenant comes and Messiah finalizes his kingdom, there's no more fulfillments. That's it. That's the whole point. <laughs> there you go. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, oh, uh, one one other thing too. Oh, go. Um, I would say that even if you point um, that if you believe in the ultimate authority of the New Testament apostles, right? They have the ultimate authority. As a Christian, I would say even if you can show me that the apostles do that, you know, okay. that they say, "Oh, this f- prophecy about Messiah," you know, like uh, out of Egypt I called my son. You go back and read that. That's not a prophecy. It's, it's talking about Israel and stuff, and that they quote it as if it's a prophecy of Messiah. To which I say, okay, well, if you're going to say, well, if the apostles can do it, we can do it. Uh uh-uh. uh. Yeah. Because the apostles are the final authority that Jesus gave them. He didn't give us the authority to do what they did. And mm. if they draw out double fulfillments, I would accept it. I accept it. 
but only the things they draw out. Because if you say, well, if they do it, I can do it, you're claiming apostolic authority. Right. So I would argue that if you can show uh, apostles are making double fulfillments, fine, but only on those things in which they claim, because if you go beyond what they claim, you're going beyond the scriptures. That's what I say. You heard him. Join us for part three with Brian Godwell.